0: Welcome to the Untoxicated Podcast.
1: (laughs) Well, I'm Sherry Salis, and that was my husband, Matt.
0: We have questions about the impact of alcohol and addiction on relationships.
1: If you have those kinds of questions, too, you're in the right place.
0: Here we go. The title of this podcast, Sherry, of this episode is The Blame Game Keeps Us Stuck. Oh, the blame game. We were good at that. When I was drinking, yes, I always thought it was your fault whenever we were arguing, Mm -hmm. and you wisely knew. Well, I don't know that I would say it was your fault. Yeah, you didn't know that it was. I mean, you knew that the alcohol was the impetus, but but you blamed me. Uh huh. You got pretty fired up at me.
1: Yeah. So the blame game. Because I felt like drinking was a choice. Yeah. You know, so I was like, well, if I. You know, if you have a choice not to drink and you know drinking upsets me and you know you act like this when you drink well then you're having a choice so
0: that's true for a long time you did not accept the disease concept and you were not able to blame the alcohol or all the societal impacts or all the driving forces behind why we drink you know that it's a medicinal for trauma and stress all of that has come you know in the last few years and we accept it so openly now, and and just believe it so truly, that sometimes it's hard for me to remember back when we were in it, right? When I was mm-hmm. drinking, we didn't know any of that shit. We just spat venom at each other. That's true. And you were really mad at me a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. And I was convinced that you were crazy, or you were, you know, taking your childhood alcoholism experiences because your father as you've shared was an alcoholic and that it was just warping your mind and that that was the cause of all of our all of our inability to get along so much pain and anger came from the blame game and you know when there's pain pain and anger not pain so much pain is a i think a real genuine baseline emotion but All the experts will say that anger is just covering something. Whether it's covering pain or some other emotion. Fear is what I've often Fear, yeah. Pain and fear. I was trying to remember what the other one was. Yeah, pain and fear. Yeah. So when we are angry, we feel compelled to lay blame on somebody else. To deflect. And that's uh, that's what my act of alcoholism was all about. And then even in early sobriety... I was so full of shame and I needed to release it. And it took a long time for us to get to the point where we learned that we needed to blame the alcohol. Uh, but eventually we did. The The real turning point for me was when I realized, probably around a year into my sobriety, I realized I wasn't suppressing these urges to curse at you and to call you bad names anymore. We We had an Echoes of Recovery video call just earlier this week and someone on the call said that the only time that they've ever in their life been called a bitch was by their alcoholic husband. Never at any other point in their life. And then, like, eight other people chimed in and said, me too. The only person who's ever called me a bitch was my wife. Now, or my husband, pardon me, was my husband. Now, you were a bit of a spitfire in college, so... (laughs) Oh,
1: you're gonna go somewhere! I, this. I'm just and saying. I'm sure you've been called a bitch a lot more times than just by me. Is that what you're trying to say? I wasn't
0: gonna say a lot more times. Well, I was
1: gonna say, I was gonna mention in that call that I have been called a bitch several times in my life, just not always by Matt. But
0: and some ironically, of those, you worked hard and earned it too. Oh
1: yeah. But most of them were either drug or alcohol infused.
0: Yeah, true that.
1: So, because I was like.
0: Arguments in a bar or stuff like that. Yeah,
1: and as, uh, let's just preface this by saying it wasn't because I was starting the argument in the bar. Like, we worked at a bar and yeah. kicking people out or cutting people off. I remember one time this guy like called me a fat bitch and I went, I don't care, you drunk idiot, you know? I'm like, you're not offending me. Yeah. I really don't care. Um, that is one of
0: the things I admire about you. You have thick skin for things like that, especially or for drunk people. when
1: they say... Like, you know, when my friends that are girls, like, man, you are such a bitch. Like, that's a compliment in a way. Oh. Was, like, the way I handled, like, a really nasty comment or something like that. Because that happened. You know, we... I wouldn't say it, like, sounds like we went to these terrible bars. But it was just a lot of college idiot drunkenness. (laughs) And terrible comments and things like that. So, I, uh... I had... I had a happened plenty of times but not in my adult life when I've and I'm sure that some of mine was I was sassy because I was feeling empowered and because of alcohol or you know
0: well and and while we're on this trip down memory lane your sassiness was one of the things that most attracted me to you I loved that you were such a spitfire but getting back to the the topic you know I I don't think it's uncommon for women in alcoholic marriages to feel like the women on the echoes call who said the only time i've ever been called a bitch was by my alcoholic husband and that's hard that's hard that there's that leaves a lot of pain and a lot of shame once we're in early sobriety for the drinker and all of that pain and that shame all of it needs to be released and if we can blame the alcohol which as we've stated you and i have fully adopted that um oh and so back Back to why it was easy for me to adopt that. Once I was a a year or so into sobriety, I realized I wasn't suppressing the desire to call you nasty names. And I wasn't suppressing the desire to control the situation and tell you you were wrong. And I didn't think in my brain, oh, she's crazy. Like those, all of that was gone. And I realized the reason it was gone was because I hadn't drank in so long. And my brain was healing. And my neurotransmitters were firing properly. And things were... We're getting back to normal, and it was, it was a huge relief for me to realize that I didn't want to call you a bitch.
1: Because I wasn't. Because you weren't. Right.
0: Because you weren't, and, and all of that had gone. And so the only place that we could lay the blame at that point was on the alcohol. Because that was, you know, if you think of a scientific experiment, experiment when all the variables are in control, and there's only one variable that you change, we'll get and then the outcome changes, guess what? The variable you changed had to be responsible for the outcome. So very scientific this is, our, uh, <laughs> our blaming of the alcohol. Um, so, but here's the thing. Blaming the alcohol is not a free pass. And that's where I think people take it too far. They, you know, especially us alcoholics, we say, oh, wait, wait, that was back when I was drinking. I was an alcoholic. I'm not an alcoholic anymore. We're supposed to blame the alcohol. And they make that sound with their hands. And they say, so I don't want to talk about it. You can't bring it up. There's nothing to well to see here because I don't act that way
1: anymore. Or I think sometimes the, uh, well, I apologize for that so we don't need to discuss it anymore. Yes. I mean, that kind of plays into the resentment thing. But you were master of that. Oh, well, I apologize for that so we don't need to bring it up anymore.
0: And the reason that my apologizing for that didn't matter was because during my act of alcoholism, I apologized on a weekly basis. I might be blaming you for something in the moment while I was drinking, but then two or three days later, I would realize, no, that was me, and I'd be filled with shame, and I would come and apologize for whatever I did, and because I was such a master at whatever it was I did, repeating that very thing again when I was drinking again the next week or a week later or two weeks later or whatever, my apologies meant nothing to you, Mm -hmm. because an apology for an action that's just going to be repeated, I mean, that feels hollow, right? Absolutely. So, that's one of the problems with and, you know, I didn't do the 12 steps, but I, I still did this, right? Like like you just said, I said, well, I apologize for that. Why do we need to talk about it again? But with the amends process in the 12 step programs, a lot of times, the the alcoholic in recovery, once they've given their amends, they do the Brushing the hand their
1: hands of the whole situation. There,
0: I did my, I did what I needed to do. Why do we ever have to talk about this again? And it just doesn't work that way. Alcoholism, addiction, it's a disease. And that you know that that's something that I'm, I've had lots of opportunities to argue my points relating to the fact that it's a disease. The only one that I'll mention here is listen, there's far, far, far too little attention paid to alcoholism as it, as it is. It's just been accepted in our culture and in our society as a given plague, and we're not going to do anything to fight it anymore. And so by labeling it a disease, a disease, at least it shines a little bit more of a spotlight on it than when we just think of it as a moral affliction or a moral failing. So yes, I can defend to the hilt the fact that it's a disease. It, it changes the way our brain functions like other diseases do. But if you'll just accept that alcoholism is a disease, that doesn't give you something to hide behind. It doesn't give you coverage uh, so that you can say, oh, I had a disease. I don't have that disease anymore. I don't want to talk about it.
1: No free pass. No,
0: no free pass. I mean, when we refuse to talk about it, that's honestly, it's bullshit. It's okay to treat the addiction like a third person in the room. That's another way to look at it. You and I talk about blaming the disease. Mm -hmm. Our friends Anna and Mitchell who we've had on the podcast a lot of people that we know really resonate with their describing the addiction as a thing, as a a person basically. So think of it as it's you, it's your spouse, and then it's the addiction. Mm -hmm. So blame the addiction for all the turmoil and chaos. Don't blame that other person.
1: Yeah, that was a that was kind of a light bulb moment because I know I had been just coming around about the time that we, um, I really fully accepted a blaming of the disease and really uh, kind of embracing it. And it had been a few months. So then when they said like, treat it like it's a different person or a different entity in your relationship, you know, I know some of our um, people we've talked to have talked about it like alcohol is a mistress. But since I never had that like, scare or concern for you like an actual adultering you know, adultering side of things. It was hard for me to envision so when they said treat it like a third person I was like, in my brain I could see the three of us and it stood in the middle. Yeah. Between you and I. And there was this like blobby outline of you. Yeah. It was like a picture light bulb moment.
0: And so was it easier to picture that as a <laughs> third person as a third entity the further I got into sobriety? Because... I wasn't acting like that anymore. Yes, it's, it's like, like you were
1: peeling out of it. So it yeah. was like this... Yeah, it was sort of like a sci-fi moment in my head. Like, I could see you coming out of that. And that's why it was just this, like, opaque shadow outline of you. And it didn't have your features anymore. Yeah. Oh, I like that. Yeah. And then I would think back when you were drinking, that you were emerged in that and kind of opaque and cloudy. And then your... Um, like actual physical person of you standing next to me would be very like pixelated and not fully in focus perhaps because it was also taking over your sober moments. So there, you know, your sober moments were still saturated in alcohol. So yeah, I, I you can tell I'm a very like visual, visual picture imagery person. <laughs> I like but the, that I like the sci-fi
0: imagery. I can see like, like a ghost or a spirit leaving a body. Yeah. Yeah, that's good stuff. Okay, so even once you start to recognize that you can blame the alcohol, that there's a third person in your relationship and that third person is the addiction, great, that's but that's not like you're not done. Like mm-hmm. That's not the end. There's still a third person in your relationship. Right. That's, that's not ideal. So you can't just ignore that third person and hope it goes away. You can't again. You can't just blame the alcohol or blame... The disease, and say there's nothing more to see here. There's nothing more to talk about. There's a third person in our relationship. Of course, there's more to talk about. Like now, we're so we're so far into it, and this is what we do, you know, every day. Like that just seems ludicrous to ignore the um, that third person in your relationship. Well, but it happens a lot,
1: right? And I think that like with my imagery, because it was in between us you know that that space that entity was in between us in my picture in my mind it was very clear for me to see how that needed to go and the resentments we needed to talk about we needed to like recount some of the instances and i needed you to like be humble and be truthful and be like forgiving of yourself and forgiving of me before that started to fade
0: I think I've got our next project, Sherry. Your imagery is so vivid. And we have an 11-year-old living under our same roof, almost 12-year-old now, (laughs) that just loves comic strips. And he loves drawing comic (laughs) strips. So you can share your imagery with him and he can... "Intoxicated" the comic strip! It'll be the best seller at the Corner Pharmacy, for sure.
1: Mm, Yes.
0: But no, I I do like the way you... Adult
1: comic book on recovery of alcohol. I think most
0: adult comic books have, like, um, cartoon drawn boobs. I don't think we want well, to well, not in the at all. Adult like for some though. of the
1: anime and stuff that like our older kids would, you know, they watch anime cartoons. That when are like, I come around the corner, they
0: Like a, uh, they're watching a cartoon where they're like somebody's shooting. I'm, you know, like a adult like. I'm like, oh there's probably boobs in this. I don't want to see no, this. No. no, I think you're right. Not always. I hope not. That's just that grosses me out. I'm, yeah, I'm not a. Well, anyway,
1: you're yeah, just not a comic book kind of animated sort of kind of person, unless it's.
0: I'm not a p- pornography guy <laughs> to begin with, yeah. and the I definitely don't want to see some weird creep that's drawing boobs and then I'm going to look at. I'm like, ugh, that's gross. So I don't like adult comic books. That's. We're probably characterizing it wrong. We're probably going to get emails about adult comic books aren't pornography.
1: Uh huh. Yeah, just throwing the word adult in front of it. Yeah. Doesn't make it. Explicit.
0: Okay, good to know.
1: They're just man. It's like not for kids. The content, the stories behind it.
0: So when you and our eleven-year-old work on our your comic <laughs> strip, yeah. Um, one of the key things that you're going to have to get across is that yes, that's a third person. The addiction is the third person standing in between us, but you can't ignore them. The that because what happens when you ignore it is that anger and the pain, it just festers, and it is resentment, and resentment does not go away. You can push it down. You can push it down for a long while, but it's coming back up, and it's never going to just disappear. It has to be processed, and so let's talk a little bit about you know, what we have done to process resentment, and it's it's very timely to talk about it in a discussion around, okay, I've been sober for a while. I've been sober for a good while now, and I'm able to separate the addict from myself. See that as a third person. I'm releasing the shame and the guilt from what I did because I realize I'm not gonna do that anymore. Uh, I don't have any compulsion to do that. I'm not borderline doing that. Like that's not even a part of me. So that's this other person. So I don't feel guilty. Now I've gotta be able to sit and listen to the things that have happened in the past, the resentments, the place where your pain and your suffering lives and acknowledge that your version of the story is accurate. This is not the amends process. This is not me as the alcoholic apologizing to you for the things that have happened. This is me sitting quietly, sitting still. You can do it, you know, doing it all in one session. I think it would be pretty arduous. It would be not only time consuming, but it would be really, really emotional. But over time... You can sit and you can listen to all of the things that have happened in the relationship. Starting with the most painful and moving until the memories start to fade. And listen to the alcoholic loved ones, the spouse's perspective on what happened. And not just perspective on like, here's what happened. First this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened. Not just the facts, but the emotions behind it. Like, this is how I felt when you were doing this. And I was forced to find an alternative activity for the kids to protect them from their own father. And can you imagine how that feels? Uh, You are my bonded spouse and I'm protecting our children from you. So working through all those emotions, what was that like for you? The resentment processing?
1: Well, I like that you said that sitting quietly. Because oftentimes during conversations with, with you even before you became an alcoholic, you were always not listening. You were just preparing your answer or your defense.
0: That's such a good point.
1: So I like that you have to just stay seated or, you know, you have to stay quiet and pay attention. Also because the amends process, from what my understanding is, um, that, you know, there isn't a whole lot of conversation about the emotions, the invoking of the feelings and when, and the tangible things like, so when I see this now, it puts me right back at that place. You know?
0: like The triggering things.
1: Right. Because it's just a, I'm sorry that I did this, I'm an alcoholic, I'm working on myself and it's about the alcoholic, not at all about what the other person has to say. Now, of course, some people do amends, do it in a different way, and maybe they um, try to hear from the other person but the resentment processing is completely different. And I also feel like we tried it a couple times and then I had to work I had to work through some of my own stuff and I had to work through my ability to trust you that you were going to just listen or appreciate what I had to say. Maybe maybe part of it was I was worried you were going to disagree. Oh, it didn't happen like that mm-hmm. or no, I don't think that that's what I meant. Well, I don't care what you meant or what you think didn't happen or did happen. This is my perspective of it.
0: That's a really important point because my drinking and the aftermath from that was one piece of trauma, right? Mm -hmm. But another huge piece of trauma was me telling you later, later that night maybe, or later the next day, no, what you remember isn't what really happened. And for me, that wasn't done out of a place of evil. That was done out of a place of deep shame, out of confusion, because I quite often had blacked out and I didn't know exactly what happened so i would just deny that didn't happen that didn't happen because
1: cuz you felt like you wouldn't do that you oh, wouldn't I, yeah, be that I way because that wasn't yourself
0: the idea that that had actually happened exactly but so your trauma comes not just from the drinking and the direct actions that result from the drinking you've got a ton of trauma from me telling you no what you think happened didn't really happen so then when we sit down to resentment process for you to actually be vulnerable and say this is what happened on this night when this awful event took place, you've got to trust that I'm going to sit there and listen, and that's really hard, right? That's I mean, you had to work up to that. Yeah. And then the other really important thing you said is I had to sit there and not prepare my next argument, which you're 100% right. I know so many people that feel that way too. Listening is a skill that most people don't have. Most people are, as they're hearing words come out of the other person's mouth, preparing the counterargument.
1: Well, and part of that is I don't want to like dismiss this, but there comes a level of humility. Yes. In that, not making excuses for the behavior or justifying the small little details of something. Even now, like if I were to say, I mean, it happened last night. I said you, I said something. Oh, I'm going to do X, Y, and Z, and you like said I just feel like you know you're doing this an awful lot, and I'm like I wasn't doing it anything. I'm not working anymore at this place than I was before. And you're like, oh. And I said, yeah, because that kind of hurt my feelings. And you were like, yeah, I guess you're not, you know. I mean, that's not a very detailed story, but I didn't well, have any problem saying, hey, you know, you're kind of wrong there. It's your perception, and you're feeling like I'm dismissing our nonprofit to do this other job. And you're like, you're right. You're not. Not giving up on our nonprofit. You're, you know, devoted, and and I knew this was going to happen. And you're right. Whereas before, I would be very nervous because I'd be like, oh well, he's a cocky prick, and well, there is no humility.
0: And so, why did I say that? Why did I take that shot and say, oh, you're working at the church a lot right now? Yeah. Do you remember why I said it?
1: Because I probably because you were kind of feeling stressed about. That's exactly right. What was going on with the nonprofit? So. When you
0: called me, and then you called me out on it. And I was able to say, you know what? You're right. That had nothing to do with you. That had to do with, I am trying to put 10 pounds in a five pound bag. Right. And anything that gets in the way of that just adds stress. And And so it was all about me, selfish, selfish me taking a shot at you.
1: And then you also apologize instead of saying, okay, and try to justify Well, it was just this one little moment, one little glitch that I said that you'll get over it sort of thing. You know what I mean? Like. You didn't try to dismiss it. You immediately apologized. You owned up that it was you and that I was right, that, you know, I'm not doing anything more, really, than what I had before the holidays. So.
0: So that's the difference. And the place that that comes from, humility is, you're right, it's a good work. But there's another place it comes from that this might seem counterintuitive, confidence. Mm -hmm. I don't need to always be right anymore. I don't, like, I feel good enough about myself, I have enough self-esteem, that if I say something stupid, which, <laughs> you know, flash alert is going <laughs> to happen a lot, when I say something stupid I can own it and move on because I, I, my life isn't just one big cesspool of shame.
1: Right. And the the confidence that I thought I saw in you and arrogance, I guess is a better way to describe it, was false when I
0: was when drinking. You were drinking.
1: It was absolute false because you were full of insecurities, Yes. so then you were just boastful and arrogant, full of yourself. It's a facade. Yes. It's a glass facade that is easily shattered because that's when you would attack and make me feel bad. So, now that you have this real self-confidence and you understand that making mistakes and tripping up is part of human, being human, it's easy for you to then apologize for it and own it and not defend it.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So the resentment processing, when you're sharing with me the details of what actually happened during my alcoholic days, you know, times when awful things happened, and I'm able to sit there and not prepare my counter argument, but actually absorb it. What that does for both of us is it shares the burden. Because until that point, until we process those resentments, you're carrying all the burden of the detailed, exacting, truthful memories, and my mind is just this blurry, you know thing. Um, I know there's shame involved, and maybe I'm able to release the shame, but I don't know the details. I don't know how it affected you emotionally i I can't you know I was in and out blacking out, passing out, which are two different things, but there's no way for me to know. So by acknowledging that your version of the truth is the truth, it's like half of the load shifts from you to me. And because it's a shared load, it's manageable by both of us. I I mean we talk about resentment processing a lot, but Sherry, I think this is maybe the cornerstone of why we're still together. I think if you can't find a technique to do this, I don't know how the marriage survives. If you're just going to push it under the rug and push it down and say, I quit drinking for you. I said I was sorry. You know, isn't that enough? Like, I mm-hmm. I don't see how you... I mean, you might be able to live together for the next 50 years, but that's not going to be much of a relationship. I, I no, don't see I how think it it's because you're be. going to
1: still have other issues. And I think that, you know, like you have... You have to work a program. You have to actually do the work. And whether it's a combination of several programs as the alcoholic or the loved one, if it, you know, if it's combination and therapy and, and you know, some AA meetings and some smart recovery or something like that, you know, like food and nutrition, like really dive into it and uncover your own, like, deep, dark secrets that are buried within you that cause the addiction, that cause that, and... And you have to be truthful and humble and honest with your spouse on both sides. Like I know it sounds kind of silly, and a lot of people would probably be shocked by this, but oftentimes after I would get off a call with my therapist, because we did Zoom calls, you and I would talk about it because there were things that we talked about in the um, the
0: therapy session. Therapy
1: session session. Those are the word I was looking for. Session that I. Felt like was a light bulb moment, and because I was trusting you at that point, because you had been so vulnerable and humble and open and willing to, you know, work with me and on our relationship and yourself, it was able. I was able to share that, and I think it helped the process too, because I wasn't just because we were further and long than a lot of people at that point. Like you were working on you early on. We were, we did it wrong.
0: Well, we didn't know that you needed individual Yeah, help. We so, were like clued in enough to recognize that. We thought so I had you would already, just get better as I got better. That, right, that doesn't work either.
1: Right, but I had already had seen trust and chain. You know, trust development right. again and changes in you and your humility and that sort of stuff that made me feel okay that I could talk to you about that. Now, that's not going to happen in every situation, but... Because I also feel like you told me about other things besides alcohol that you struggled with.
0: Oftentimes, when people are in therapy, and when they do it right, as you know, kind of like you were indicating, and they do it right away, they do it. Or they do therapy right off, right away after, or, or while the alcoholic is even still drinking, or in early sobriety, they are still so afraid of what reaction they're going to get from their spouse that they couldn't possibly get out of a therapy session and talk with their spouse about it because they're afraid it's going to get thrown up in their face in one yeah. form or fashion, right?
1: Right, because it happens during active alcoholism.
0: And even early sobriety. <laughs>
1: and early sobriety, yeah.
0: When, the, when as an alcoholic in sobriety, when I did not feel good about myself and my self-esteem was super low, and we've said this before, but I believe the opposite of addiction is self-esteem. And so when your self-esteem is low, the chances of relapse are super, super high. And so you're doing everything you can to fight off the temptation to drink because you just feel like shit about yourself and you know that the alcohol will make you feel better at least temporarily. When you're in that state if you were to you know, show me cracks of vulnerability, I would at some point, when it's like a wounded animal, right? You don't approach a wounded animal because they're just in fight or flight mode. If you would show me cracks of Vulnerability. I would in my wounded state find a way, some way, somehow, sometime, not on purpose, but I would find a way to throw that up in your face and make you feel bad about the thing that you had shared with me.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So it's not until I felt better about myself, not that false arrogance facade stuff that you were talking about earlier, but actually legitimately felt good about who I am as a human being, don't need any outside approval, don't care what anybody else thinks, that's when I can accept your honest E- examples and explanations of what you were talking about in therapy and really have empathy for you and be interested and root you on, you know, be your, be your cheerleader. Mm-hmm. I love that you you kind of made our transition for us here because I want to talk next about the long term. We've been talking about the short term. Resentment processing is is often done in early sobriety. It's kind of the first step to relationship recovery. I'll throw in there that also, addressing things with the kids, if you have children, can take place around the same time as the resentment processing. Because mama bears, their minds are different than papa bears. They are. I, I don't want to say that as a father, I'm not loyal to my kids. I am. I'm extremely loyal to my kids, but I've recognized that there is a connection that you feel for the kids that's different than the way I feel about them. You know, I want to protect them and feed them and and you know, help them grow, but you have just a mama bear heart. And it's hard to describe any further than that, but I think most most of our listeners will understand what I'm talking about. And so, when my actions as an active alcoholic have hurt the kids, that hurts you in a way that is different from the way it hurt me. And so, along with the resentment processing, the other thing that has to happen is having honest, real conversations with the kids about what happened. And letting them do their resentment processing, letting them, you know, me as the alcoholic, just sitting there and taking it and listening to my children talk about how they were scared sometimes and how they heard things that they shouldn't have had to hear at age nine, and really get that off their chest and then, you know, hear me say I'm sorry without a rebuttal, without it, oh you heard it wrong or you know sometimes parents just argue and uh, that's part of being adults. No, I just had to to sit and take it and. And I by no means am saying that we have been perfect with how we've handled our kids post-alcohol. I have continued to make lots of boneheaded mistakes. But, but that was one day, you know, the, the first of, of several sessions where we weren't making a mistake. It's really important to address the kids. So those are kind of the get after it as early as you can. Resentment and addressing the kids. What was it like for you when we sat down and talked with the kids?
1: Um, I guess I was feeling anxious and I was very worried. I was very, very worried that they were not going to feel comfortable expressing themselves. Um. I also I'm fighting back some tears because I remember like watching them have to talk about it. That they had to talk about it. That they had those things to bring up and and express to us. Made me very angry that their life wasn't better. Yeah. Because as parents, all we want is to have a better life for our children than what we had. Even if we thought we had it great. You know? Um... Those were things that shifted and shaped their lives in a direction that they were not supposed to have happen. Yeah. So it was painful and anxiety driven at the beginning. Um, just, and you know, sad. Just yeah. sad. And I felt very proud of them that you know, that they were able to say some things and it opened up my eyes to the awareness between each of the kids and what they had to go through. Like what they remembered or didn't remember or heard and didn't hear. Like just that I knew their perspective and it was a way that I could like gauge where they were in their acknowledgement and understanding of what was going on in our house. Now just because the youngest couldn't really express some things and didn't really know doesn't mean he wasn't affected by it. I think he has a lot of things that are a result of the tension and the anxiety and this drive to not do the wrong thing. Because yeah. I think there was that worry like, oh my gosh, then something's going to... You know, that he didn't know how to say it or he didn't know what was happening and that was shaping him.
0: Let me ask you this: do you feel did you feel vindicated to some degree because at the time even even at the time when I said, "Great, let's sit down and talk to the kids even then, even when I was willing to do it, I didn't think that my drinking had had nearly the impact on the kids that it clearly has, and you you thought that even though we tried to argue late at <laughs> night and whisper yell at each other and tried to keep it away from them you felt they were more intuitive and that it had had a big impact on them. So when you saw that that emotion come pouring out, was it I know it was painful. I mean I it was painful for me too. I totally understand that part of it. But was it validating in some to some degree?
1: I mean I suppose it was, but <clears throat> I never liked to like really receive credit or compliments, so it really wasn't like a I, I didn't un, I don't understand like if I really feel like it was a validation. Yeah. I just felt like, uh, see, I told you. Well, these kids were affected and, you know, it it didn't give me any comfort or any sort of good feelings of it being recognized in your eyes. So I guess, having the, I don't know, like having the validation, I suppose, is what happened, but it didn't, I didn't feel good.
0: So you didn't about feel it. good, like I wasn't. Ha you know, ha ha, Matt. I was right. No, but you did feel good that I sat there and listened. And, right, and, and I was,
1: and I felt good that they were able to say some things, and yeah. then we could kind of move forward in in working with them.
0: So this is just another example of yes, alcoholism is a disease. Yes, the addict is the third person in the relationship, but you can't hide behind that. You can't just say there we've acknowledged it. Move on. You gotta do the work. Mm-hmm. And so resentment processing, sitting down and and engaging with the kids, and we've done it more than once. I mean, the first time was certainly the most traumatic. It reminds me of the time we had a we had a mouse infestation at the bakery. I can't believe I'm saying this out loud. But we had an exterminator come in to take care of it and they put glue boards down and they said, This first night's gonna be bad and as soon as we turned out the lights, we started hearing the Screaming mice on the glue boards Oh, yeah Why did I talk about that?
1: I don't know But it's like capturing all the badness And you see it And it's visualized And it's there And you can't ignore it
0: And then you know we had had to continue to treat the problem And it got less
1: and less uh, and less and less So that's why you thought of that But yes, so we were able to like Start working on these things Slowly and surely And it was less and less and less and less
0: absolutely but ignoring it is not an option and then in the longer term when you know it's fine to blame the disease for the lack of trust because the resentment processing the kids that's the early stuff right you getting your help me getting my help we're both working on it ourselves individually that's all early on do that as soon as you can all of that's really important but then trust rebuilding it's like you hear the brakes screeching to a halt on the progress that you're making because trust rebuilding takes a really, really long time. And just like it's fine to acknowledge the fact that the addict is the third person in the room and we're going to blame the alcohol, that's totally cool and I think appropriate. We can blame the disease for the lack of trust in the relationship as well. But you can't just hide behind that and get all mad about it and wish that it would go faster yeah, you can acknowledge that the disease destroyed the trust, but you still got to rebuild the trust. And that takes a long time. I like to use this example. I I coach high school soccer. I coach both boys and girls. And a mentor of mine many years ago taught me that when you're coaching a girls soccer team, there are gender differences. And one the biggest one, one of the biggest ones anyway, is that the girls team will want to trust you as their coach, and they will put their trust in you pretty quickly. But if you do anything to violate that trust, you will never get it back. Once you wreck the trust with one of those girls' soccer players, it is gone, and you are toast, so be very careful about that. A boys' team, on the other hand, boys are more cocky and full of themselves and independently spirited at that high school age and they're going to look at you like, I don't know who the hell you think you are, new coach, but, you know, I'm not going to give you the time of day. And you have to earn their trust up front. And they have to come to recognize, okay, this person really does care about me. He is trying to help me and has puts my best interest at the front of the line. And then once the the boys' team trusts you, they will be fiercely loyal. And there's almost nothing you can do to shake that loyal loyalty. And so that's a little, you know high school athletics example but i think that those gender roles carry through in our relationships and i actually had a conversation with a psychology professor at the university of denver uh, about 3 or 4 months ago about this and he absolutely validated what my mentor had shared he said yes that is there is a gender component to trust and i had and i was thinking about it properly he kind of went on to reinforce what what i thought to be true And so, once I had violated your trust, getting it back is a long, long slog. It is not easy, and it's going to take time, and there are no shortcuts. I mean, we would have found the shortcuts by now, between the books we've read and the people we've talked to and the experiences we've heard of from other people. If there was a quick and easy way to rebuild trust, we would have heard what that is by now. (laughs) There isn't. It just takes a long time. And here's where we, as the alcoholics, make the mistake. If I'm frustrated with you because you're not trusting me, now my my loyalty is undying. Now, first of all, you've done nothing to break my loyalty, right? So there's no trust breaking going that direction. But regardless of that, even if there is, you know, it's going to be hard for you to shake me. I'm I'm like a barnacle stuck to the bottom of your boat I am not going anywhere I am I am into sherry I like we are you're my life partner that means a lot to me it was really eye-opening for me in early sobriety when I started to really recognize oh I'm sober that hasn't fixed anything she might actually still leave it's funny even when I was drinking I never really thought you would leave I don't know why arrogance I guess just just alcoholic arrogance, but I never thought you would leave. But when I was sober, there were moments where I was like, oh, she doesn't like me anymore. I mean, yes, she can say she loves me and she does love me, but she doesn't like me. And that's a really bad sign. And so when I recognized that I was more um, trusting of you and more into you and more locked into you than you were to me, um, that scared the shit out of me. But Here's the here's the point that I'm trying to finally get to, right? If you show signs of not trusting me, if you are not vulnerable with me, if you you know hide things from me, not, not like lying, but you just suppress things. Because in the past, bringing them up would have caused an argument, so you don't go there. Things like that. Just clear yeah. signs that you don't trust me. And if I get mad at you about that, what does that make you feel? <laughs>
1: well, it proves my point. Yeah. Like Makes you trust why, me less, yeah. right? So why would I be vulnerable and open with you and feel that I can come to you with things? Because you're just going to react, overreact, or make me feel insecure about my own um, thoughts and feelings. So then I would clam back up again.
0: And I, and I don't want to sound like, because over time we've kind of figured this out, I don't want to sound like I think I'm some perf- perfect like husband to figure this out, I had to do it wrong for a long time. So I would, I would get mad, you know, I don't drink anymore. What, why are you still, you know, acting this way? Why are you still throwing this up in my face? Why can't you trust me? And once I finally stopped doing that, that's when that trust rebuilding could start to happen. That's when the rebuilding could start to happen because I wasn't constantly making it worse. I mean, there's there's some saying, right, that in order to make it better, you've got to stop making it worse first. Right. And we think in alcoholic relationships that the only thing that makes it worse is the drinking. And once the drinking's gone, it's going to get better. Maybe it'll take a long time. Maybe it'll be fast. Who knows? But it's going to get better. That's not true. You have to actually do things to make it better besides stopping putting the bottle to your mouth. And so... This is, you know, I can't emphasize enough how important this part is. If I get mad at you, Sherry, for not trusting me, it's just going to make you trust me less.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And this, all of this has a huge impact on intimacy, which I think is really important for everyone to understand. I think, in kind of an easy way to define intimacy, is that it's Because everyone knows intimacy is not just sex, but intimacy is sex plus trust, right? I mean, if you're at a stage in your life where you do not want to be in a serious relationship and you don't want to be intimate, you can go out there and have sex with all the people you want and you don't give a shit if you trust them or not. Once the trust starts to become important and that bond, that connection starts to become important, you're building intimacy. And so if the trust is missing in the relationship, then the intimacy suffers or is non-existent. So to bring this all full circle, right? We're talking on a Tuesday afternoon about something and you make it you make it clear that you don't trust me. And I get mad at you and yell at you because you clearly don't trust me. I have just hurt my chances of having an intimate connection with you you know, in the bedroom on Saturday night. And that was a really difficult thing for me to understand for a very long time because, in my mind, those things were separate. And maybe that is because, like I said, I was just like permanently bonded to you as the barnacle on the bottom of your ship, and I'm not going anywhere. So I didn't have a trust issue. So, intimacy, I was still ready and raring to go. But for you, no. I yell at you on Tuesday, and then whatever time we've carved out to maybe spend some time alone together, it's not going to go well.
1: Yep. I think you said it very well.
0: I get a yep and a nod. (laughs) Okay. I think you're right. Okay, so um, that's my cue that we're done talking about sex and intimacy. (laughs) If anyone did pick up on that.
1: I'm also like looking at the notes that you have written, like, is this gonna go any further? What's going on here?
0: I know you get a little little antsy when we go down that path, don't you? Yeah. It's fine.
1: Well, and I think let me just explain. I feel like I didn't have a lot of broken trust with you about finances. Yes, okay. sometimes you it did scare me. <laughs> And it made me worry. And also, but you and I have talked about it. Like, you're like, I don't always tell you finances because I don't want you to worry. Right. And I, because I do have a tendency to worry about that sort of stuff. So we didn't have that. I didn't have any concern about infidelity or um, other sort of like sex addiction or pornography viewing, that sort of stuff. So there was, to me, I kind of can, I guess maybe it's compartmentalized the trust. Like I can trust you here, I can trust you there, I can trust you here, I can trust you there, um, but uh, I think unfortunately some of our listeners and they they don't have that. It's not compartmentalized sort of trust issues. Like it's just because it's hit so many areas in their life. Uh-huh. Like you didn't really, you were not always honest. About how much you drank, and to me, I don't even care. I don't even think I cared how much you drank, just like the way you were acting about your drinking, you know. So to me, the amount didn't matter. But you never lied and said, you know, oh, I'm not um, drinking, drink right, because you just aren't a good enough liar. Yeah, I don't and really I would have seen how through. it. get away with that. And I would have seen through it, or I would have said, well, I don't know what you're on, but you're on something. Yeah. You're doing something. Um, so I never had many areas of trust broken. So, yeah, I think that for me to work on rebuilding trust also is a little bit easier in some areas because I didn't have to worry about so many areas being affected.
0: We have had, you know, there was lots of denials, like you said, (laughs) denying the amount, not yes or no. And, and trying to pull shade over your eyes as to what you're seeing isn't really true. I'm not drunk. I've just had a couple of beers, that kind of thing. But we have had a lot of people tell us that they feel like the lying, that the bold face lying, like I have not been drinking as someone. Trust me. Like, the other yeah. Day, or the breathalyzer is wrong while they're throwing up in the toilet. Yeah. I have not been drinking that we've had a lot of people tell us that that is worse than the drinking, that the mm-hmm. lying is worse than the drinking more damaging to the relationship than the drinking.
1: And maybe somewhere that is
0: all about trust.
1: Yeah. And maybe somewhere in the back of your head, you just knew that. Like, you're like, well, and also I think because you felt like what you were doing wasn't wrong. You drinking wasn't wrong because you were just doing what all the other Americans out there.
0: That's the way I was brought up. That's the way, that's what society taught me. And I didn't think, you're exactly right. I didn't think, you know, I wasn't, I never got to the point. I did drink in the mornings toward the end. That was very shame-filled. That was something I would have acknowledged right away was wrong. But for the most part, I didn't get up and I didn't have to drink vodka to go to work. I didn't, you know, nothing like that. Mm-hmm. So um, you're right. I was, prou- I was proud of my drinking. It was part of who I was. I was. I wore it as a badge of honor, as sick as that sounds now looking mm-hmm. back. But so that, that just kind of further enhances the point, right? The more damage that's been done to the trust, the longer the trust rebuilding is going to take the more intimacy is going to suffer because intimacy is sex plus trust and you've just got to be patient because there's no shortcut. So, you know, if if I can rather than get mad at you when I see signs that you're not trusting me, rather than get mad at you, if I can have compassion for you, going back to the example of the girls' soccer versus boys' soccer and the gender differences, if I can say, oh, it's natural for it to take Sherry longer to to feel trust for me again, because of all these times that I've done things to damage the trust. And guess what? It's okay. It's it's natural for trust to come back slowly. If I can sit comfortably in that place and not get mad and feel compassion for you, as a you know, rather feel compassion for you because you don't trust me the way I trust you, and know that it's not your fault. That just further proves that I'm trustworthy, right? Mm -hmm. So just like me getting mad at you for not trusting me makes you want to trust me less, not getting mad at you for not trusting me over time slowly leads to you finding a way to trust me.
1: Right, and I think I'm just going to jump in and say, like when I would see you react about, you know, me not trusting you or it also... Not only does it just make me not trust you further, but makes me also say, well, you've still got to stick up your butt and you still think that you're right and that you deserve. And so it's that, it, it still plays into that humility. Yeah. And that, oh, I'm not perfect. Oh, I'm still doing something wrong or not something wrong necessarily, but I'm still, I still have work to do. Um, so, yeah. and it just, it, for me, it sets like a little bit of a judgment up. Yeah. That makes sense. Because I'm judgy. Well, aren't
0: we all? Yeah. Well, you and I specifically.
1: <laughs> Maybe that's one reason we get along, so well, we're pretty judgy.
0: Yeah. Um, last point that I want to make is that, you know, and, and I, I just heard this recently, and I can't remember who said it, and I would love to give credit, but I can't remember. Trust isn't re-earned. It's given or not given. And so as the, the drinker who's now sober, who's trying to win back his wife and re-earn your trust, I, I've got to dismiss from my mind this idea that if I do the right things, if I do all the right things and I do them in the right order and I don't make any mistakes, that I'm going to earn back your trust. That's, that sadly isn't how it works. All I can do is just keep doing the right next thing And do my best. And you are either going to find it in your heart to trust me or you're not going to. And that has a lot to do with your childhood experiences. And the parenting role models that you experienced growing up. And your early interactions with men. And then yes, it has a shit ton to do with your experiences with me as an active alcoholic. But it's all in the past. There's nothing I can do about it other than like I said keep doing the right best thing and hope because there's no perfect path to re-earning trust you're either going to give it to me and if you do it's a true gift or you're not and i'd like to say that i feel like you know we are i don't know 95% there there are, i'm 5 years sober and there are still areas that we're working on there's still times when i can tell that you don't trust me there are times that i can't tell and you have to tell me you know i was uncomfortable in that situation and it shocks me because you're pretty good at a facade too you can you can pull it off like you're comfortable when you're not mm-hmm. but when the truth comes out there are still areas where trust is not 100% there yet
1: and but I, it's close and i have always told you <clears throat> like during our healing process that because of my early childhood experiences and the things that like you know those the you've heard this before. If you want something done right, do it yourself. Right, like, you know, so that w- and you you're going to be the only person that takes care of you. Right, sort of things. So those have been some mantras that have been through my life. My mom was you know a single working mother in the seventies. Very independent. So very independent women's lib that all came out. You know like anti-men, so I am a little anti-men, and I also am a pessimist, so I am very untrustworthy of a lot of people, Mm -hmm. and I keep a lot of people at just arm's length. Yeah. So I have told you, and that doesn't seem to make you feel any better because it's not a 100%, but I always tell you, you are the person I trust the absolute most, and I feel like you should recognize that maybe... There's that 5% that I don't trust, and maybe it'll get to 97.5% wow. trust. We're
0: going to need But some you should charts. still remember I
1: trust you the most. And I, I wish that I could be more trusting and be more open and with people. But I just feel like I've been hurt and seen bad things. And also maybe it's that prejudgment that I have.
0: But here's the beautiful thing that I believe is happening in our relationship we're work, you know, you and I have long rejected the word recovery because that indicates that you're going back to a place where you were before. You know, that's not happening for us anymore. We are going to a new place that we've never been before. We were not this is not some place we were in our 20s. We weren't capable of of being you know, in this mindset and having this kind of relationship in our 20s. So, yeah, I'm hopeful that The trust will continue to grow. And yes, I do appreciate the fact that I am the most trusted. But, you know, I think it's really important for me to understand. And I think it's really important for people that are in my similar shoes to understand that there's nothing I can do to re-earn the trust. It's either given or not. And when it is, it's a gift. And we, as, you know, alcoholics who have hurt the trust... And we're getting it back when it's given back. Don't fuck it up.
1: (laughs) And on that note... (laughs) Amen. Don't fuck it up.
0: (laughs) Before you go, we hope you'll consider these three resources.
1: If you love or loved an alcoholic, we offer support and connection in our Echoes of Recovery group. Check us out at echoesofrecovery.org.
0: If you are a high-functioning alcoholic seeking methods and connection in early sobriety...